but it's it's just the main challenge for me is rephrasing some of the analysis that I did uh, in hindsight knowing what happened after that so Ukraine is now a case of failed desovereignization as an instrument of coercive diplomacy because the whole point of coercive diplomacy is to try and avoid full-scale war if the coercer resorts to full-scale war it means that it failed to try and pressurize the target state into accepting conditions uh, that are favorable to the coercer uh, without incurring into the political, human, economic costs of full-scale war. Hi there, welcome to another episode of our podcast What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and I'm a PhD candidate hoping to learn from the academic journeys of peers and early career researchers. This time, our guest is Jaroslava Barbieri, who is a doctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham, studying the role of Russia in strengthening attributes of statehood and sovereignty in post-Soviet states as an instrument of coercive diplomacy, and she focuses on Ukraine and Moldova. Now more than ever, of course, very important work. Yara is doing her PhD part-time, as she is also a researcher for the ARENA program at John Hopkins University, and she works as a project manager at Zinc Network. But before we get into Jara's journey, I need to invite you to check out our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled like the number two. We also have a blog on our website and videos on our YouTube channel. We'd love to hear what you think, so don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, subscribe. But let's listen now to Yara's story first. So... Jaroslava Barbieri holds a BA in philosophy from the Sapienza University of Rome and has not one, but three MA degrees, a Master of Science in Political Theory from London School of Economics, a Master of Philosophy in European Politics and Society from Oxford, and a Master of Arts in Social Research from the University of Birmingham. During her studies, Yara has interned for Justin Trudeau as part of the Canada-Ukraine Parliamentary Programme and has done two parliamentary internships in the UK. Yara has just started her PhD at the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham as well, when I met her at a summer school in Alpbach in the mountains of Austria and where we both presented our first thoughts on our research. Yara researches the role of Russia in strengthening the attributes of statehood and sovereignty in post-Soviet states as an instrument, of course, of diplomacy, with a focus on Ukraine and Moldova. And in the light of ongoing invasion of Russian troops in Ukraine, her research is more relevant now than ever. Yara is a part-time PhD student, as she is also a researcher for the ARENA program, which is based at John Hopkins University, in which experts analyze the impact of disinformation and propaganda on democracy and come up with solutions. Yara also works as a project manager at the SYNC Network, which is an international development and strategic communications business. And that's what I'm going to wrap up with. Yara has been teaching at Birmingham University and at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. Wow! Welcome, Yara. I am glad that during these hectic times, 
you made some time to join us today. How are you doing? Hi, Danny. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, wow, that's such a nice refresher, my biography. Um, yeah, I mean, these are tough times, uh, I believe, like for many Ukrainians inside the countries and outside the country. Um, you know, Russia's invasion has been kind of a collective trauma for many of us. And the latest events have sort of left an impact both on me personally and as well on my research because Russia's involvement in eastern Ukraine and eastern Moldova in these so-called de facto states that is territorial entities having de facto sovereignty but lacking the euro international recognition has been my uh, research for quite a few years now uh, so I guess that's what we're gonna talk about today definitely yeah we'll talk about everything uh, and I'm hoping to get a lot of insights from you I'm sure we will but when we talk about such serious and also some personal things, um, it's only wonderful that I'm having my regular amaretto with me, which is Italian, just like you. <laughs> uh, and it has a little U on my bottle, uh, which I now interpret as the U of Ukraine. So Aww. cheers to that. Cheers to <laughs> what that. What are you having? I am having uh, Italian wine, like half of my identity, in a handmade Ukrainian mug, like my other half identity. So I thought that would be a very appropriate drink for today's conversation. Very nice. And I like the cup. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, I would like to start with a few short questions, as I usually do. Um, as a part-time PhD candidate and having multiple jobs, not just one part-time job, what is the first thing or the first role that you have when you wake up in the morning? The first thought I have um, I guess I just, I've always been a bit of a workaholic, to to be fair. So I have an Italian in me, so I do enjoy Dolce Vita. But uh, with every year, I just feel like I put on my shoulders more and more work because there's more and more stuff I want to do. And lately, you know, I've been going to bed with thoughts about what's going on in Ukraine and waking up needing to check uh, the news otherwise I cannot really start my day so this has been um, basically my uh, morning cycle for the past two months or so um, but I'd say that I I always have a very um, fixed routine I get up um, I have my Italian coffee and I read the news about the world and once I have this feeling, okay, I know what's going on, I can start. I hate not knowing what's going on around me. Uh, I guess if you have that little glitch in your brain, then picking a, a, a career as a researcher is a good choice. <laughs> right, so it seems you're in the right place. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, we talked about your identities being both Italian and Ukrainian, and now as a researcher, you've spent most of your life in, uh, in Britain. But what do you miss from your daily life in Italy? From my daily life in Italy, um, I miss walking around streets where there's just almost a instinctively natural, like a natural instinct to beauty and aesthetics in the little details. <laughs> uh, whether it's about architecture, whether it's about food, uh, this is something I've always loved about Italy. 
Um, and about Ukraine, I just miss um, walking around the streets of the capital where most of my friends um, are and living through that very informal multiculturalism that has always been there in Ukraine and just have this freedom of movement, feeling like the whole of Europe is a bit my home. I never felt these distances mattered to me that much uh, until COVID and until um, the war. So I truly miss this um, easiness of, of, of travel, this, this feeling that these borders don't really matter um, that much. That's what I miss the most. I hear you. Yeah, um, I think COVID for a lot of people had a, a similar impact, especially for people who have um, mixed backgrounds like you and me uh, with family and friends spread all over. So, yeah, but I'm glad that now at least the pandemic is over and let's hope that um, the war will also only last just a little bit more. Okay, talking about Ukraine... I have another short question, which is, what is your favorite Ukrainian food? Because I thought about it and I don't actually know any Ukrainian food. Um, I really like uh, Vareniki, which is, um, you know, many here in Britain would understand them as dumplings. Uh, so okay. essentially every Eastern European country will have its own version of dumplings. I remember, funnily enough, once I was at a conference in Vilnius, and I saw everywhere, every pub had outside this sign, dumplings, traditional, local traditional dumplings, half portion or full portion. And in my head, these were the small, would be small and similar to the Ukrainian ones, which is like Italian ravioli almost, in t or tortellini in terms of size. Okay. It turns out, and I was like, afraid, why would I order a small <laughs> portion? Of course, a full portion. It turns out the Lithuanian ones are these massive potato-based dumplings <laughs> filled with meat and topped with fried bacon. So I understood why I should have ordered a half portion. That's just a funny story of how many dumplings that can be. Uh, but yeah, uh, there can be many different fillings. And I just have, you know, this memory of my grandma always... Um, making them uh, it's a very kind of warm uh, memory so uh, I truly miss that right I haven't met anyone yet who doesn't like dumplings so I think you can't go wrong with them <laughs> all right now let's hear the story behind your academic journey so I've already mentioned that you started with a BA in philosophy actually in Rome and then you completed three master degrees in Britain in London Oxford and Birmingham so Tell me, how did you roll from philosophy into political science? Um, so I went to a secondary school in Italy that uh, focused on classics. It's a very uh, typical type of education in Italy. Um, so we studied okay. a lot of Latin, ancient Greeks, history, philosophy. And despite my kind of love, respect for sciences, I realized I never had the brain for it. I've, I was always more wired towards social sciences, languages, humanities. I come from, on my Ukrainian side, you know, family of, of writers, dissidents against the Soviet regime. So since I was a little kid around me, constantly conversations about politics and literature. 
So I guess I was a bit primed in that respect. Um, and when it came to decide what to study, I just had this um, incredible passion for philosophy and particularly political philosophy. So I was already moving in that direction. But I was fascinated by questions about uh, how individuals um, give meaning to their life in a society, to their relation to the state, um, and political philosophy is inevitably linked to ethics, what we call like practical philosophy. So all of those questions um, really, really interested me early on. Uh, so it made sense to embark on a uh, philosophy degree. And then um, because I had studied French, Back in school, uh, when I came okay. to choose my Erasmus year, I picked Paris. Um, and again, all of my modules that I picked there were also about political philosophy. Um, but then what happened was um, the Ukrainian revolution uh, in 2014, uh, end of 2013-14. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit of a turning point for me uh, in the sense that um, I felt like philosophy was not enough for me anymore. It felt like more of a personal, intellectual journey that mattered to me. But um, professionally, I felt like um, this was no longer the path that was right for me. Um, okay. And so I applied for um, an MPhil in European politics um, at the University of Oxford. I didn't get in the first time round. Um, and I got in the second time round. And so like many other things in my life, uh, it turned out that uh, one failure can be turned into an opportunity and then everything, right. uh, you know, um, somehow finds its own way backwards, supposed to be. Um, so yeah, that was another transition uh, period for me. Uh, and European politics, it's quite an interesting it was an interesting program because we had a department that had four different directions. Was well, IR, government, which was my political science, strictly speaking, um, uh, political theory, international relations, and European politics. And so European politics was a bit this hybrid of people that were both interested in domestic politics and the international environment and how these coexist. And it was a very diverse um a uh, group of people and already there I was focusing on the use relations with the Eastern Partnership countries and the EU-NATO relations with Russia. So, you know, I was moving in that direction anyway. And then I always knew that I wanted to be a researcher. So um, I was thinking already of applying for different PhD programs and that's a time when you... Um, are thinking about different programs and that's where I am now. Right, so I understand how you moved from philosophy to political science and that it wasn't actually really a move because somehow, even when you were in philosophy, you looked into a lot of political questions um, and things like that. And then you said, so after my BA, I decided to apply for a master's in Oxford. First time, didn't get in. Second time, worked out. But why the UK? So you had studied in Rome and in Paris. Why now the UK? 
Uh, I knew I wanted to move to the UK since I was eight years old. So there's a little bit of a funny story there. I watched the film Braveheart when I was eight years old. And I fell in love with the movie and though at that age I still had a very superficial understanding of British culture and history, but uh, somehow I got drawn to it and my dad um, was actually a professor of uh, English language. Um, so I had a whole kind of family of linguists and just growing up, I would be reading the English language dictionary as if it were a book. I was just in love with English language. Um, I think it's because of my, the hybridity of my identity. I was attracted to Britain because it's an island and has always been with this one foot in Europe, one foot outside of Europe, this kind of outlook towards across the Atlantic. Um, and um, it just had somewhat an open-mindedness and a global outlook that I missed a little bit in my countries of origin that I always down, found, especially Italy, more provincial, geopolitically speaking, and that was too narrow for me. It was not enough. And so for me, British society and especially the way they approach uh, high education was always something I deeply respected and it was just a, an objective of mine uh, for many years. So I worked So a master's was really going to give you that way in, right? Exactly. To try to see what it would be like to live in the UK. And I understand now why you did at least two masters because you said the first way around you didn't get into Oxford. That's, I suppose, when you started in London and then you tried again, you did get into Oxford, but then there's that third one from Birmingham. So how do you explain that? Uh, that was again uh, a funny coincidence. Um, I was looking for funding, of course, um, for my uh, PhD. I got three offers um, from King's, UCL and Birmingham and at that time, everyone was telling me, Yara, the two most important things when you're applying for a PhD are your relationship with your supervisors and funding. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my initial plan was to always move back to London. It was the city of my dreams. Uh, I always felt like a Londoner, essentially. And then uh, suddenly I receive uh, news that I got the ESRC uh, scholarship, which is one of the research councils, um, UK government funded scholarship in the UK, one of the most prestigious ones in, in social uh, sciences. And it was so surprising because, you know, I just had applied to it when I was doing my internship at Chatham House in London. And I just knew I had to apply, but, you know, I had very little expectation that I would go through. Right. And my supervisors at the time, potential supervisors back then, were travelling to some... Uh, conferences so it was all very last minute but it was so organized nicely I was like all right and then suddenly I find out that I got it and I was I had just flown back from Ukraine to Italy I think with my mom and so I ran towards my mom with open arms through the airport it was a very nice moment and then I find out I thought I had only received funding for uh, covering tuition fees and then it turns out that I had already gotten a so many years of residence in the UK that I was also eligible for living costs 
I was like, I did not see this small print. <laughs> yeah, so then I had to collect all this bureaucracy and these documents to prove that, um, to prove my residency. Um, and so I got that. And so at some point I, will, I had to decide between UCL and Birmingham and historically Birmingham and UCL both have excellent um, departments for uh, Russian Eastern European studies. Um, and I just uh, really, really loved the supervisors I could have worked with um, in Birmingham, which I already had met my main one through Chatham House. Um, and then when I accepted, uh, it turns out that my studentship issuer required research training, which I had already done in Oxford. But because Oxford right. is a very old school institution, they don't associate the research methods that I did with specific credits, whereas they wanted credits. So essentially they forced me to do a master's, which actually turned out to be very uh, useful because I had a gap of a few years mm -hmm. when I was working so that was a good uh, it was good for refreshing my memories on research methods before embarking on the PhD uh, but essentially um, it was my choice I was obligated to do it but it went very well so yeah. I cannot complain I see that yeah that's also how all the systems uh, work differently because I've also heard in the US on average a PhD takes much more time because actually they have uh, time before they start writing um, their own research, they really uh, take on courses and try to get credits to actually become a researcher uh, and the PhD candidates, right? So it's interesting to hear how it works differently, not only in different countries, but also between different universities. Yeah. Um, but if it worked in your benefit, then maybe that's great. And there is a nice ring to having three masters on your name, I think. I don't know. It's too much, I think. Um, uh, but it, it turned out for the best. It's, it's you know, I believe that this is um, every researchers have their own journey and it turned out mine was slightly delayed, but um, I'm happy where I am now. So I guess those were right. all necessary steps. So you started doing the PhD back when you started, also when we met. Um, and you just explained to me that you actually got a scholarship for that, right? To be able to do that uh, also for living costs. But you're also working at different institutions, right? As a researcher at the ARENA program and at the Zinc network. So if you think about it, if you take a step back, someone who's not in your shoes, then you would think, why do you bother doing a PhD at all if you're already working in what I assume you like doing? And if you already have three degrees what do you think does the phd give you extra well i am a researcher at heart um so the two positions that i mentioned really came in later on uh in my okay. phd so i started my phd in uh when was it now 2018 19 was the masters and that was sort of a prep year to think about your research design etc um, and so fully on, I started in 2019, uh, 2020, my PhD. And I just knew that I wanted to uh, understand better um, Russia's role in the former Soviet space and especially towards countries like Ukraine and Moldova. And again, see here, you understand where my philosophy background comes in. But a key 
element in my PhD is also analyzing how uh, the Russian's ruling elite has historically approached the concept of sovereignty, which is one of the key concepts for someone that does international relations or political science. And it's just very different from uh, the one we study in the Western scholarship. And so there's a bit myth of the Westphalian type of sovereignty, you know, uh, external sovereignty, absolute uh, and sort of all different states have equal sovereignty. That's just not the dynamic that operates between Russia and um, a former Soviet states. And here is where kicks in a post-colonial dynamic that is really not used as a framework to understand Russia and the post-Soviet regions. But I do believe it should, because, for example, if you compare uh, that type of relationship with relationships between, say, uh, Britain or France and their former Soviet, uh, former colonies, there was a formation of a certain nation state and then came the formation of the empire and then the Fumaya, the empire collapsed and sort of there was a very strict split between the former colonizer and the former colonies. Whereas in the case of Russia, the formation of the Russian nation and of the Russian empires occurred at the same time and in a situation of territorial contiguity. So what constitutes Russian external borders and other nations external borders was always very blurred uh, and so currently if one listens to uh, Russian state narratives uh, towards Ukraine one notices this kind of lingering post-imperial syndrome very strongly and that has implications for um, the, the Russian state identity uh, because Kiev, the capital of Ukraine nowadays, was also the centre of the medieval state of the Kievan Rus and that is a state entity that is sort of uh, being um, uh, co-opted in the historical memories of um, Ukraine, Russia and Belarus and the Russian imperialist um, narrative has always been that these are three brotherly nations and there's the big brother and the small other brothers that sort of need to follow the lead of the big brother. And so this narrative as a result of this war is being quite discredited. So from what I hear is that you basically needed to do research and a PhD in order to try to tackle all of these questions that were still open um, that you had about um, how Russia views, in your words, maybe colonies, uh, but former uh, Soviet uh, parts uh, of the empire um, and, and how they view each other and, and who is sovereign and who is not and what the nations, nation states there are or not. From a perspective, both from uh, the West and, and Western research, as you say, Birmingham has a long history of studying Russia and Eastern Europe but also from the viewpoint of, of Russia and how they look at things. It's just that as someone who is has this hybrid identity, uh, borders is just a concept that has always attracted me. It's just that rather than go into the direction of migration studies, for example, I got more into the uh, directions of foreign policy and uh, former colonizer, former colonies type of relationship in the post-Soviet region. 
So I want to ask you next, what is your PhD research all about? But one of the interesting things in your case is that you've decided on the topic before the current invasion of Russia into Ukraine. So why did you choose back then to work on such a topic? Um, so very briefly, uh, my research um, is titled "Desovereignization as an Instrument of, coercive, of Russia's Coercive Diplomacy in the Post-Soviet Region, the Cases of Ukraine and Moldova. So I essentially studied the involvement of Russia in what we call de facto states in the post-Soviet regions that, as I mentioned before, are essentially territorial entities that de facto has, have control over a certain portion of territory and population, but are not recognized internationally. And the post-Soviet region has become really the focus of many of these hotspots. Other people more informally know them as breakaway regions, separatist regions, etc. And actually, when I started uh, doing the PhD, a war had already started in Donbass, Eastern Ukraine, back in 2014. And it just I saw this pattern whereby Russia's military security involvement in these regions what it's attempting to do is to strengthen certain attributes of statehood and sovereignty of these regions at the expense of these regions' parent state as an instrument of coercion and pressure that is protracted over time in order to achieve some more overarching objectives of maintaining influence over these countries as a whole. So um, I studied really, really in depth all of the developments on the ground over the period of 2014-21. And this is also uh, justifies the case selection that I made because a lot of what was already done, had already been done in Transnistria, which is the de facto state in Eastern Moldova that has been around since the early 1990s, has then been replicated um, in Donbass, but in a more systematic um, way. So um, I was really, really feeling this urge to systematize all of this empirical evidence of just a pattern of Russia's relations with these neighboring states. Um, and I analyzed these uh, patterns across five different policy domains. So there's the political diplomatic one, the military security one, the economic financial one, the cultural educational one, and more legal aspects such as partitization policies. Right. Wow, you're very good in briefly explaining so much research. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, and I think you mentioned something that's very important. Um, that a lot of people, uh, especially in Europe, might have forgotten about, that the war hasn't actually just started uh, now that we're recording this almost two months ago. But in 2014, um, we already had the Maidan revolution, right? Which was felt in the capital, in Kiev, but uh, also right after in the, the eastern regions. Um, and uh, the struggle for independence, as at least the Russians are calling it. Um, so it's not at all that strange for you to have selected your research following all of those things and everything that was still ongoing and that is still ongoing now. Um, but maybe people will forget about it because they're like, oh, there's only a war now. It started in 2022. So why did you choose to already study it earlier? Um, well, actually, um, Putin's decision to invade Ukraine has quite um, affected my plan for what I wanted to do in the PhD because, um, 
the the framework that I had chosen and the assumptions I had um, sort of adopted was that uh, the same pattern that had been used for Moldova was also being applied um, in Ukraine. And this would be continuing for quite some time. What is this model about? It's about de facto promoting integration processes between these regions and the Russian Federation with the involvement both of Russian state and non-state actors on the one hand. But the Ure attempting to reintegrate these regions back into Ukraine and Moldova as an instrument of pressure in an attempt to create the state within a state arrangement through constitutional enshrinement. And so that had been a model that um, the Russian political elite and security um, agency had been operating for quite some time. And then suddenly um, they had reached a stalemate in Ukraine. So the Minsk peace process was not going anywhere simply because the Ukrainian side and the Russian side could never agree uh, on the sequencing of whether military conditions or political conditions should come first. Ukraine was insisting on having to demilitarize and withdraw, and withdraw uh, any military formation from these territories before holding local elections, whereas Russia was insisting on the opposite sequencing. Um, and so we've read endless analysis of, sort of what got into Putin, why did he decide to take this decision now? And apparently he's been fed inaccurate intelligence uh, data, and there was an expectation that uh, you know, Ukrainians would uh, welcome Ukrainian arm, uh, Russian armed forces with open arms and that uh, Ukraine would fall in three days. And this, was, of course, has not happened. Um, and so is this, again, the hubris of the former colonizer thinking that it can just uh, change borders uh, at a whim, just like they did in Crimea, for example. It just turns out that they cannot do this anymore. And I think... Again, it's it's uh, a symptom of this post-imperial syndrome that it's still being um, in the process of, of, of showing itself. So you just also briefly shared uh, that these current events, obviously, uh, have affected your research. And um, that's often how it happens, right? Reality can make or break a PhD research. Um, and sometimes real-world events can actually catch up on you. So how are you considering, what are you planning, how are you planning to deal with that? Well, very simply, um, as I mentioned before, I had operated under the assumption that um, this model, which had many similarities between Transnistria and the self-proclaimed republics in the Nest and Luhansk, would remain in place for quite some time. So again, the fact of integrating with the Russian Federation, but the Euro trying to reintegrate these regions into um, Moldova and Ukraine through a model of federalization that was quite um, in favor of maintaining uh, Russia's stronghold, Russia's influence into these countries from within. Um, but then with the decision to recognize um, the self-proclaimed republics in eastern Ukraine, which had a very strong political and military Russian presence since 2014. So that's a whole separate story of how these entities 
uh, came into being to begin with, because very often they're sort of lumped together under the term frozen conflict, separatist regions, but actually each of these contexts has um, kind of specific uh, characteristics to it. Uh, and that's something that I, I really insist on in my PhD, that we need to uh, try and spot patterns and and similarities and tendencies but at the same time we need to acknowledge very context dependent factors um, and with the recognition of these self-proclaimed republics essentially Putin decided to uh, exit the Minsk speaks process and so that uh, model that I had adopted for my PhD essentially fell apart and so um, coercive diplomacy uh, is a framework that usually is used to just analyze very discrete moments in time, relations between a coercer um, and a target state. And so essentially it's the idea of trying to obtain concessions from the target state through the threat of force or the limited use of force. Whereas I, I expand this theoretical framework to apply it to a more long-term pattern of Russia's relations with neighboring countries. And desovereignization, that is this progressive, gradual strengthening of attribution of statehood and nationhood and sovereignty of these regions at the expense of their parent state, was used as an instrument, of course, of diplomacy. That's my whole um, argument. But I also analyze all the contradictions underlying it, because if you look, for example, at the rhetorics of the de facto leaders, on the one hand, they've been constantly and ambiguously talking about wanting to achieve international recognition and independence and in the long term also accede to Russia. And in brackets, there are kind of reports now that Russia is planning to uh, annex the occupied territories of Donbass into Russia sometime in mid-May, on the one hand. But on the other hand, there was Russia that was saying, no, you need to go back into the political body of Moldova and, and Ukraine. So it was this very contradictory, I was calling the reintegration paradox. And of course, this model is, is no longer valid anymore. So we still don't know what's going to go on what's going on in Transnistria, by the way, if it's going to be dragged into the war or not, because uh, there's a military con Russian military contingent there since the 1990s. And it is certainly a model that worked for the period that I'm considering my PhD from 2014-21. So that's all right. My PhD doesn't have to go into the rubbish. <laughs> but the challenge that I've been discussing with my supervisor most uh, recently is that all that I've written so far was with that assumption that this is a model that has been right. applied for quite some time. Does that have to be redone? It doesn't. It has just to be rewritten. And my supervisor tell me, Yara, be very careful because this is not a, uh, you know, a think tank brief type. It's not a policy-oriented piece of writing. And you're focusing on a specific time period. And so you already made this big empirical contribution of covering everything that has been going on into these regions. Uh, like no one has like the level of details. It's the amount of nights that I spent trying to track down all of these shady websites and um, newspapers. It's extraordinary how much is out there really of, of essentially territories that are political black boxes. But it's, it's just the main challenge for me is rephrasing some of the analysis that I did 
uh, in hindsight, knowing what happened after that. So Ukraine is now a case of failed desovereignization as an instrument of coercive diplomacy, because the whole point of coercive diplomacy is to try and avoid full-scale war. If the coercer resorts to full-scale war, it means that it failed to try and pressurize the target state into accepting conditions uh, that are favorable to the coercer uh, without incurring into the political, human, economic costs of full-scale war. Uh, and so currently, instead of being, you know, very similar cases, for the time period considered, they're still very similar cases, but in the conclusion to each chapter, for example, and the final concluding chapter, I'll have to provide a whole reflection of how essentially the events of a few months after my time period of consideration ends, affect everything that um, I've said before. So um, it's just a analytical challenge. Uh, I don't have to change the, the, the empirical analysis or the conceptual analysis. It's more about rephrasing the way in which I provide some of that analysis. Right. Well, and I'm glad that you don't have to throw everything to the bin that you've been doing in the last few years as a PhD candidate. I also think it would have a lot of value that um, someone who's been so invested in what's been happening in the time right up to this invasion, that that is also such valuable work, um, even though it doesn't include what just happened in 2022 and what will happen in the future, that it still has great value um, and also for future work that will be written about the situation now to look back on your work on what we knew then what was happening in detail well to give you a very small example but one of the aspects that i've been analyzing is indoctrination programs uh, in these regions and many of these are used as a recruitment tool uh, for the russian armed forces and the so-called local republican armies and many of these are youth that are now dead because they got dragged into a war for which they were not prepared. Um, so all that I am analyzing in my PhD, that was essentially the stepping stone to what's happening now. It's just that no one knew it would go this far. So this was the worst case scenario. And everyone was saying that it's pointless for Russia to recognize uh, these two regions as independent because they would lose their leverage, they would use their instrument of, of coercion that had worked so well for quite some time. But apparently it's just this stalemate was no longer tolerable and they decided to go all in. They just miscalculated greatly. Wow. Yeah, you can say that. Okay, so I've asked you, you know, what kind of effects the situation has on your research. I'm glad to hear that it's not all been to waste and that it's still finishable, right? Because I was also going to ask, like, would you maybe be delayed if you have to rewrite a lot of things or reanalyze things? In that case, you're saying not so much. But could it also be that you're going to be delaying the process of your PhD and, and wrapping up eventually because of the situation and the toll it has to on you as a person. I also know, for example, I've seen, I've been following you on social media and everything that you've been writing, uh, also from an activist point of view, not only from a researcher. 
Um, how does that and the situation affect your PhD and um, how you see this moving forward and wrapping it up eventually? Uh, well, literally a few days ago, I had a very frank conversation with my supervisors that have been incredibly supportive. Um, and, you know, they were saying that, Yara, we know what a hard period this is for you. You know, I have my mom and grandma in Kiev now, for example. So everything that is happening is not just affecting my research, but also uh, me personally to some extent. Uh, I have lots of friends that have been affected by the war in Ukraine. So... I will be very honest for the past two months, I haven't done much active work on my PhD. It was, I have been done other, more urgent work, let's put it this way. But, um, you know, as a researcher, that's that's the difference from other types of job. As I'm sure many other researcher feel the same. It's always at the back of your mind, it still works. It's not like you do the nine to five job and then you forget about it and go on with your life. You constantly think about these things, whatever it is that you do. And so, um, you know, I've been just thinking about how to move next. And it's just recently I moved earlier this year, I moved to part-time because you mentioned the other jobs that I'm doing on the side. It was just a suicidal mission to try and do everything uh, while still doing a PhD full-time. So that allowed me to extend my deadline until summer 2025, which is brilliant, but it's actually bad Great. because uh, now the deadline is still further away. Whereas my supervisors just um, told me, you know, Yara, you just stiff up a lip. Uh, we know that it's a very difficult period, but it is to your benefit to get this done. And so until this moment, I actually miraculously was apparently ahead of time. I had written already a lot. <laughs> I don't know how, but um, it just happens that maybe for a month, I don't get to do any kind of active writing. And then there's a week that is very prolific. It's, it's, it's a very odd journey, really. Um, and... I just, you know, you start the PhD with this sense that it's this mission of a lifetime and you have so much time ahead of you. And then you, you know, reach the last year or the write-up year and you just realise that, okay, this just needs to get done. And there's always more that you could read, more that you could write, but just this, this sense, I need to move on. I need to capitalize on what I did, whether it's turned into a book or expanding the research that you did um, in light of new events. It's sort of, it's always this effort of catching up with reality. My, my second supervisor was telling me about a colleague who had just uh, did his viva, defended his thesis on, I think it was the... Eastern Germany's relations with the Soviet Union, something like this. Uh, and then the next month, the, the Berlin Wall falls. You know? The, wow. <laughs> so yeah. that sort of thing. Or someone uh, doing the Soviet Union relations, well, I forgot which states, and the Soviet Union collapses. So, you know, it's not our responsibility of cashing up with reality. It's our responsibility of making sense, of taking a step back and making sense of these broader processes of getting our hands dirty with details that most people just don't care about or miss and so um i just think that this is just the state of mind that we need to uh embrace right so i've also noticed that with these extra jobs that you mentioned which you do part-time in addition to your phd research um they also have to do with 
um, one of them at least, with propaganda, right? And with fake news, as we call it nowadays, uh, uh, and how to how to fight that and to bring up solutions for things like that. In your case, you're looking at uh, Russia and what's happening in, in Eastern Europe and news that comes from there or that is told about what's happening there. Um, I would say that that, in a way, is also a form of activism, right? So how do you combine research and activism? Well, I'd say... Uh, you know, when I look at oh, real activists do and how they put that sort of uh, physical well-being in in danger, um, I wouldn't see myself as a real activism. Uh, it's more of a sense of imperative obligation as a researcher to put out there now via social media, which is you know part and parcel um, of our way to communicate with the world nowadays. Uh, just in you know very in very in a very brief format, very complex issues that it takes months really to to fully understand. Um, so the disinformation propaganda component of my research fits what I mentioned before, which is the implementation of the so-called patriotic education programs, which have been around in Russia, um, you know, actually since Soviet times. And just like in Nazi Germany, for example, you had the famous Hitler Jugend, uh, Hitler's youth in Russia, you have since 2015, under the control of the Russian Ministry of Defense, the so-called Young Army Movement, uh, which essentially it's a paramilitary organization where they train uh, youth aged 11 to 18. Uh, they do military training, first aid training, and it's just a um, preparatory stage for joining the Russian armed forces. And they've opened regional branches in exactly these de facto states, these breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine uh, and eastern Moldova, for example. Um, and so that's the more explicitly militaristic um, uh, strand. Um, and they have these military patriotic clubs that have, on a smaller, less systematized scale, exactly the same purpose and you have former veterans that are kind of trainers um, and Russian former military um, that also organize all of these lessons and then you have the historical uh, strand where essentially what they do they try to rewrite essentially history and they teach the next generations that the historical evolution of um, this region is not connected to say Ukraine, Moldova is part and parcel of the historical evolution of the Russian state and the Russian nation. And so these essentially are the little motherlands part of the bigger motherland Russia. And so this historical element is um, inextricably linked to the military one because it provides that historical memory that is the justification of many of Russia's contemporary military adventurism. This constant reshuffling of the great Soviet victory in the Great Patriotic War, which is how they call World War II, the way in Russia and these regions you now study World War II is between 1941 and 1945. So not 1939. They don't study the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, which essentially had these secret protocols with uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union deciding to split Europe into two spheres of influence. This is not studied in, in the Russian educational system. So having that narrative whereby Russia historically has fought this 
uh, almost a, a historical fight against fascism is also um, a rhetorical device to distract the local population from noticing the slightly fascist and revanchist aspects of contemporary Russia, where the decision to revise internationally recognized borders is justified uh, based on false historical facts uh, and sense of historical justice. And then you have the final strand, civics lessons, essentially, where they teach the next generations to respect so-called state symbols. So essentially, all those lessons that give you a sense of civic identity uh, in opposition to the parent state. So Ukraine and Moldova are pictured as the aggressors and Russia is pictured as the um, civilizing uh, and force the savior, essentially. And, you know, if you enter this educational system when you're five years old, that inevitably will shape your per your identity as a person. So, you know, even if the war were to end tomorrow and um, we go back to the pre-status quo 2014 in Ukraine, for example, that's an Transnistria even longer. These, you know, it, it existed as a separate reality since the early 90s. It will just very, it will take a very long time and, and very complex processes of historical justice to, um, to restore peaceful relations and, and feel like part of one of one country. So, um, you know, as a, as a researcher, I, I need to focus on a specific time period, but the implications of what I'm looking at really, really cut across many generations. Right. Okay. And uh, making people aware of uh, how this system works or that the things that they have learned might not actually be uh, closer to the truth. Um, so you, you say you don't really call that activism. You would say it's more like psychon to explain what we know in academia and distribute that to the broader population? Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, um, I... I uh... I'm very pleased that you that you perceived it um, as activism. It's just that um, in my head, I always uh, thought about activism as a more kind of physical activism for some reason. Right. Uh, I see what you mean. And for me, what I'm doing on social media is just um, a a an imperative as a researcher. It's my responsibility to provide data and analysis on what I observe and be open-minded to how others uh, might interpret this data. What's frustrating about the current situation um, is that, and we saw this uh, dynamic happening quite a lot in the context of public debates and scholarship debates about populism, it, there's not just a disagreement about the same facts and it's just competing interpretations of what to do about them, how to move forward. Mm -hmm. It's just two parallel universes, two different worlds that just deal with different facts. And there's one world, in this case, the realm of Russian state propaganda that operates on the basis of false facts. And they fabricate an entire narrative to justify the revision of borders, the revision of you know, international, the international security order until now, 
on the basis of a kind of collective victimization narrative that is very dangerous. So someone like me has to now observe very closely what's happening inside of Russia, not just for the purposes of my PhD, but you know, thinking more broadly about the future of European security, of global security, we know what happened between World War One and World War Two. Uh, a country with very strong militaristic and, and um, revanchist aspirations was humiliated. And that was a lingering process that then provided the basis for creating a totalitarian system. And right. the big difference between, for example, Germany and Russia is that Germany after World War II went through a process of institutionalizing collective responsibility, collective memory that has not just happened in Russia yet. So for someone like me who grew up in a family that sort of remember the repressions of, of, of Soviet times, it's like you have never seen a Russian leader sort of kneeling um, in front of uh, um, memorials of countries in Eastern Europe to um, remember their debt and, and ask for forgiveness for what a state did in previous generations. And so these are extremely painful and complex conversations and processes, but there's this sense of of really pain and resentment is how, how much longer can you want to just deny our right to exist? as a country why can't we just coexist so yeah that's the million dollar question yeah if you want to know more uh, about the data and the analysis that uh, Yara is sharing on social media you can find her on Twitter and you're invited to connect with her so find her account with the handle at Yara Barbieri and you will find the information uh, in the same place where you found the information about this episode uh, so go and check that out. Okay, we've talked about a lot. <laughs> but unfortunately, we have to wrap up. So I'm going to ask you the last and the most important question uh, of this podcast. And that is, what are you going to do with that? What are you <laughs> planning to do once you have the PhD? I think that's the billion dollar question. No? <laughs> Um, well, as I said before, um, I always felt um, like a researcher at heart. And throughout my doctoral um, studies, I've uh, taught also in my department. And I just love teaching. I just love doing research. And currently, this is quite an extraordinary moment. So naturally, I'll be involved also in other types of jobs it's just that um my long-term dream would be to uh work as a researcher based at a university that has a very great hub for my my field and also work with uh think tanks and research centers and provide policy analysis to relevant governments for what happens in the countries um that i'm interested in uh, and that would involve also um, more journalistic commentary. It's just essentially uh, writing about uh, what I like to study. So um, I just think that this will be a fairly um, smooth process. Um, hopefully, of course, you know, I'll have to finish the PhD. I'll have to apply for jobs. But it's sort of my long term plan has remained quite stable. 
Okay, yeah, we will see where it goes. Um, very curious about where that will be, but as you are also working at different projects uh, and you will be wrapping up your PhD, you said probably in 2020, uh, yeah, 25? No, that's the last deadline that they gave that's me okay. with the transition to part-time, but hopefully by the end of 2023, it's going to be over for real. Okay, so we'll see where the world is at at that point, including your work uh, and what will happen after. I'm I'm sure that I'll I'm going to be following you on social media to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I have a few more short questions really to wrap up with, and because of the time, I'm only going to allow you to answer in one sentence. So this is going to be a tough one. I'll do my best. <laughs> the first one is. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? I'd say empirically, studying in depth the local reality of these post-Soviet de facto states. I believe that this has not been done yet and offering a comparative analysis of these realities. And conceptually is this concept of desovereignization. So really unpacking Russia's involvement uh, in these breakaway regions and reframing them as an instrument, of course, of diplomacy to try and take a step back and analyze more the long-term trends of how Russia has related to former Soviet countries. Sounds good. Yeah, and we did already talk about this, and I think it is very valuable. Then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Um, I think that throughout my lifetime, my grandma has always been uh, a big role model for me. Um, she's quite a famous writer in Ukraine, and she was part of this dissident movement of artists, writers, back in the Soviet Union. Um, and it's just this sense of resilience and this uh, professional ethos that has always really left a mark on me. Uh, and literally, you know, the first days of Russia's invasion, I was, you know, constantly worried about them. And my mom would tell me that uh, my grandma was making herself pretty because she's like that if, if the invaders come to your house, you need to uh, be able to um, stand up um, with dignity and not looking in fear. Uh, and so this yeah. sense of fearlessness and commitment, commitment to a cause and intellectual honesty is just a, a life lesson that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life. Wow. That sounds like one very strong lady and a role model. Then to really wrap up, this is the last one. How do you relax after a hard day of work? Um, you know, it, it depends when uh, I used to be more of an outgoing person. Um, I, I'd love, you know, to go out for a drink um, uh, with friends, but this has not been possible for quite some time. Um, but honestly, I could have a glass of wine and, and, and listening just to some music, whether it's classical music or whether it's Sigur Ross and a little bit kind of space out and let the brain do its weird associative memory kind of stuff. But it's, you know, I'm pretty sure researchers have constantly this mental tension all the time. So um, it's quite important to let the brain uh, relax and not be constantly strained. Uh, so yeah, 
sometimes I go to the that gym good. when I find the, the time. <laughs> so I go to these insane long sessions because I don't find the time during the week. Uh, so that, that also helps. Right. Yeah, the gym. I totally get that. I do the same. All right, Yara, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Your academic journey, your work, and also what I call your activism are inspiring. And thanks to the audience for listening yet again. Don't forget to connect with us with the handle at what to do with that on social media, YouTube, and our website. We'd love to hear from you. And also don't forget to check out Yara's Twitter with the handle at Yara Barbieri. All right, Yara, you're obviously also part of a community of Ukrainians uh, living in the UK, right? Is there anything you could tell the listeners about what they could do if they would like to help? Uh, well, uh, there are different strands of, of help uh, that is needed. There's this bank account that uh, the National Bank of Ukraine created to directly support the Ukrainian armed forces. If uh, this is not the type of um, assistance that uh, you're looking for, that is an infinite amount of associations, organizations working on humanitarian aid. So uh, I'd encourage you to um, look at um, your local organizations. There's always going to be a Ukrainian community in your country uh, that will coordinate uh, shipments of humanitarian aid with people on the ground to make sure that the people most in need will receive them. So there's actually an extraordinary network of organizations working in this direction. And finally, one very important contribution is to um, distribute accurate information about what's going on. We talked a lot about propaganda and disinformation. So if you can even change one person's mind and encourage them to be more open-minded and diversify their source of information to try and get a more objective understanding of what's going on in Ukraine. That's actually a very big contribution. 